Uh, first, we want to extend a special welcome to our Baptists from Asia Pacific, uh, some of our brothers and sisters there. If you're here for the APBF conference this week, uh, can you please just uh, stand up so we can welcome him? Okay, let's give that a warm welcome. Thank you. Uh, this past week, we have, thank you, sit down. We have this conference in Singapore, and uh, today, it finished yesterday, and they'll be flying back today. So, we uh, extend our fellowship in Christ uh, to our fellow brothers uh, in the of Baptist in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, we are coming to the end of our series on the book of Galatians, so let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you. I just want to pray that Holy Spirit, you'll move our hearts, convict us to see the importance of community to help us live out this gospel centered life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are not having live stream today, right? Or have okay. Then I thought there are some issues. Oh, only this might working, no wonder. If you have no live stream, then I can walk around. If, if not, then I have to stay in the box. <laughs> okay. You know, this person called Ed Rowell, he shared his experience uh, going to the Alps with his best friends. He said, it was a beautiful day and our spirits soared in response to the grandeur of the Alpine. Uh, there were many hiking trails and we picked one that was a bit more challenging because it went by uh, the town of Grondewald, which was a little, quaint, beautiful town. We should have picked one that was more suitable for three men in their 60s and one in their 70s. But instead, we were so excited, and so we picked the more challenging one. After about six kilometers, my friend Al, uh, who is 70 years old, or in his 70s, was seriously exhausted. He could not walk anymore, and going back wasn't an option. About another five kilometers, we will be at our destination. So I suggested that two of my other friends go ahead to the mountain lodge to confirm our room. And then Al and I will follow along behind slowly. And so we plotted our way. I told Al, you know, for the rest of the five kilometers, we will rest every hundred steps. Every hundred steps we will rest. When we are going uphill, you will be in front. Downhill, I will be in front. And so we walked 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest for the next five hours. That day, we walked like lovers, hand in hand, leaning against each other, whispering into one another's ears, prayers, Bible verses, encouragements. I've never felt so close to another male human being. Finally, before sunset, we arrived at our destination. You know, Raoul's description of this journey parallels the Christian life. How do we live out this gospel-centered life? It is to live it out in community. So we began the series by talking about the true and false gospel. The gospel means we are saved by grace and we respond by faith. But we are not just only saved by grace, we also live by grace and respond by faith. And so the big idea of this whole series is the just shall live by faith to lead a gospel-centered life. A life centered on the gospel, not just your salvation, but every day. And it requires a response of faith. As a result, how do we maintain this freedom we experience in Christ? Freedom from the bondage of sin. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom to love and be loved. It is to be assured that you are a child of God, your identity that you are the child that is free, not the child that is born in bondage. And then last week we saw 
not just in our identity, it's the Holy Spirit who maintains this freedom for us. When we walk in the Holy Spirit, when we yield to the Holy Spirit, when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that affirms our freedom. Finally, today we'll look at that the gospel transforms us into a new creation. How we continue a gospel-centered life is to live it in community. So today we ask two questions. How do we lead the gospel-centered life? Secondly, uh, what is the crux of a gospel-centered life? How do we live it and the crux of it? Galatians 6, 1-10, Paul would say that the, the, how we live a gospel-centered life is in community within the body of Christ, within the church. And he addresses three groups of people. Those who are struggling in sin or those who are living in sin. Secondly, the leaders, those you don't think will struggle. And then to all people. So to three groups of people and it begins like this. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The main verb in this text is the word highlighted, restore. In Greek, it's used in three scenarios. One is to repair a fishing net so it can be useful. Second is to reset a broken bone. It's painful but it's good for the future, for health. Third is to resupply a ship that comes in after a long journey. Prepare it for another journey. And so when we, Paul says restore someone, it's to heal a relationship. It's to call out their sin, to hold them accountable. It may be painful, it may be difficult, but it's for long-term health. It's to re-energize and renew this person to continue to serve the Lord. So the question we ask is, who in your life does God want you to restore? That you see that this person is drifting or maybe is living in sin that you have to call out. Or who is God using to restore you? Who is supposed to do this restoration? You who are spiritual. In Galatians, to be spiritual means you surrender to the Spirit, you obey the Spirit, and you bear the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Well, because if you are unspiritual and you try to deal with problems, you may get stumbled. You may be horrified. You know, how can this happen within the church? If you can do it, I can do it. Not only that, we want vindication. We want everyone to know what this person is doing so we feel good. And so Paul says, it's only those who are spiritual should do the restoration. And as a result, you will do it in a spirit of gentleness because we're not just trying to point out the sin, call that person out. We're trying to restore the relationship. So how you do it matters. You can say the same thing, but your tone your approach makes all the difference. The point is to restore this person. And how do we do it in, in gentleness? Well, you look to yourself. Realize I can be tempted. Means maybe I'll, if, I'm, if I'm in that situation, I will also fall the same way. And so we bear one another's burden and fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. So here is to idea here is to bear each other's burden. A hundred steps rest, a hundred steps rest. And sometimes the person in trespass may not agree with you, okay? If they're in sin, you say, oh, you're in sin. You say, oh, I agree, hallelujah. But most of the time, you say, where God? You know, it's a blind spot. They don't even see, they don't realize, they don't appreciate you. That is why in Scripture, it gives us a whole process of dealing with it. 
Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Deal with it privately. If he listens to you, you warn your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Involve someone else. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay? A private sin, we deal with it privately. Don't try to deal with it publicly. Public sin, we deal with it publicly. He says, if he refuses, even to the church, listen to the church, then let him to be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. We still love a Gentile or tax collector. We still pursue them with Christ's love. But we make sure they know that this is not acceptable. And Paul demonstrated this in 1 Corinthians. A man had an affair with his stepmother. And Paul says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Even when he called this person out and handed him to Satan, whatever it means, it is because of love, because he wants the person to be saved in the day of Jesus Christ, to know that he's actually living in sin. And you know what happened, right? Second Corinthians, the person repented. And Paul says, accept him back into the fellowship. And so here, the idea is to call each other or hold each other accountable. Accountable to when you see someone in sin, to, to, to call them, hold them accountable is to bear the burdens uh, with them. And so when we look at this Galatians 6, how do we deal with it? He says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. That if you think you're something, actually you're nothing. It means that that, that person fall, you too will fall. Maybe you have own struggles, so you must examine your own work because each one has to bear your own load. Now this seems to contradict with verse 2, right? Verse 2 says, bear each other's load. Here say, bear your own load. Now actually it's not. The word load is different. In verse 2, the load is something that no one can bear alone. So you need someone to come alongside. 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest. Here, the load refers to like a backpack of a soldier. Only you can carry it. Because you have to carry your own load, you know what it feels like, then you will not be judgmental towards the other person. So when we look at this whole text, it says, restore somebody how when you look to, uh, to yourself. Realize that you're equally sinful, that you will fall, examine your own work, that you're not so great, don't be so proud. You will have to bear your own load. You have your own weakness. That person may not struggle, but you struggle. And so as a result, we can restore someone in the spirit of gentleness. Who is God putting your life for you to restore? Or is somebody calling you out? And how do we respond? You know, sometimes when people call out your sin, it's not so easy, right? I remember uh, when I was still in the US, uh, I came back from a trip. And you know, after a trip, usually I have a lot of emails to clear. So I was clearing. Then I saw this email from amongst the diaconate. And I thought, how can you say such a thing, you know? So I replied. I gave you 10 reasons why you are wrong. And then I showed my wife. I was very pleased with my answer. See? 
10 reasons why it's wrong. Then my wife shook her head. I nodded. She shook her head. I nodded. And then I pressed. Then the moment I pressed, I regret. And after I pressed, I was thinking, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. I was waiting for a backlash. But nothing happened, you know. I was surprised. But actually, there was a firestorm behind the scene. They were trying to get me fired. But the senior pastor blocked all the arrows for me, you know. Until about a month later, one of the young men that I've been discipling, he's the son of one of the deacons, he got me out for coffee and then he pulled out the email. I was stunned. He said, my father asked me, why would Isaac say all these things and I couldn't defend you? Immediately, every fibre in my body just wanted to give him an answer. I gave all kinds of excuses and blabbered on for 10 seconds and then I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I said, I should just keep quiet. And mid-sentence, I stopped. I forced myself to stop. I said, I'm sorry. I will just listen. Why? Because I reminded myself, this person is doing this because he loves me. Right? Otherwise, why would he bother to risk our relationship? Even though I may disagree, but I need to listen. And so when someone restores you, it may be difficult to hear but let us be humble enough to at least keep quiet and listen. To remind ourselves, this is out of love. Even though I may not feel it, if it is, maybe there's something right, maybe God is trying to tell me something and we slow down to listen. And so, we look to ourselves in this restoring a relationship. But you know, in church, because we are human beings, wherever there's human beings, it's messy. It's not easy to deal with each other. It's not easy to practice this. But I think what matters is we continue to grow and learn. I remember trying to deal with one of our fellow pastors, right? When my senior pastor, remember I shared with you, he was so upset he left the church. He, he went down to three kilometers to our church plant and became senior pastor there. And then the board of elders asked me to help them plan the pulpit. Now, I was still young at the time, right? In my early 30s. So, I planned the pulpit, arranged uh, people when they preach, when they should preach, what should they preach. And then there was this pastor, right? He's the guy with a lot of problems, okay? And all of us knew it. He has been in church for many years. And so I asked him, why don't you, when I schedule him for preaching, he will tell me, no, I don't want. I want this date, this date, this date. So I asked him, why? He refused to tell me, you know, until I pressed him. And then finally he says, oh, because these dates are when we have Lord's Supper and there'll be more people. And immediately I thought, What? What kind of pastor are you? You preach only when there's a lot of people? Fine. I pick those days where there's no people, where I know everybody's on holiday. I put him there. And then during meetings, I always put him in his place. My spiritual gift is when you say something, I can immediately diagnose all the problems with it. So I put him in his place and, well, the other pastors were, the other six or seven said, wow, oh, well done. Finally, someone have the guts to, to tell him these things. Those people agreed, lah, except, except one person, and you know, the person blackface every time in meeting, and that's my wife. At the end of the meeting, she'll shake her head and say, you're a jerk. I said, but, 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 there are six other saints that agrees with me. You know, at the end of the day, I felt good, because every time people say something, you know, you have something to say, you get it off your chest, very shook, right? Feels good. But I felt dirty. I felt I was not pleasing God. Years later, I faced a similar situation. Again, every fiber in me just wanted to say something in response, but I held my tongue. 
I says, no, I cannot say. If I say this, then I'm no different from years ago dealing with that person. Have I not grown? Has it all been for nothing? So I just kept quiet. And you know how it feels when you try to repress everything in? You know, I have a lot of sickness. Uh, so every three months, I'll do blood tests. That year, every blood test I went, all my indicators are off the charts. You know, your blood sugar, your blood pressure. No matter how I try to control, cannot. Why? Because everything is in here. I didn't feel good because I couldn't say what I wanted to say, but at the end of the day, I felt like I pleased God. And that is what is most important. I feel at least, no, I've grown. Why? Because, because of this verse. I looked at myself and I realized, you know what? Even though I do struggle with this, even though I disagree with this, in fact, I despise what this person did, in many other ways, perhaps I'm similar. Or maybe if in the same set of circumstances, I'll do the same thing. And more importantly, um, I always brought someone along in the meetings. I didn't meet with this person individually. I brought someone along so that I can de debrief after the meeting. <laughs> Say, did I hear it wrong? Is this my impression or my interpretation? And having someone in the room also helps me to behave myself. Because I can't just blab my mouth away, you know? Before I say something, I must think, this person is listening. No, is this the way I should say it? Even if it is the truth, how do I put it across? That matters. And so how do we live out this, our identity as a child of God, this freedom in Christ? How do we follow Jesus? Here it is in community. And community isn't easy to build. Imagine your own DG, your discipleship groups or your small groups, right? Every time someone shares, we'll be discussing it behind their back. Oh, let's pray for this person and then all the things all come out, you know? Or we'll be judgmental. Now, when you have issues, do you think you will share? Of course not, right? There was this cowboy who was transporting his horse, hitched to his truck. And so his pet dog was in the front seat with him. He went around the curve too fast and the whole truck toppled over. It was a tragedy. By the time the state trooper came, he saw the horse. The legs were so badly mangled, he could never recover. There was whining in pain. And this, this police was a animal lover. So he took out his gun and went, bam, ended his pain. Then he heard a dog whimpering. He looked under the truck and the, the dog was half, half the body was crushed by the truck. And the dog was whining in pain and again he took his revolver and went, bam. And then he heard someone moaning in the tall grass. He walked over, it was the cowboy, he had multiple fractures, it looked really bad and the state trooper asked, are you okay? And the cowboy saw the revolver in the hands of the state trooper that was still smoking and he went, I'm good, I'm good, never better. <laughs> you, you think he's going to say, oh, I'm not good? Of course not, bam! And yet, sometimes within our own fellowship, it's like that. If we do not cultivate the right spirit or culture, no one would share. But as a result of that, you know, we come to church, we come to our DG gatherings feeling lonely. Because we do not dare to share with others what we are struggling. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, the German pastor who tried to assassinate Hitler, failed and then was executed. He said, it may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship in service, may still be left to their loneliness. We can come to all these meetings, so many people, but you feel lonely. Why? The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because 
though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. We don't dare to share what we are struggling, what we are facing. We come to church, everybody is dressed, everybody is singing hallelujah and is happy. But you're struggling. You just got fired. You just had an argument, you know, on the way to church and then you come here, you must immediately put on a new makeup, you know. And as a result, we feel lonely. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that we've continued to put on a mask. There will be, we always live in hypocrisy. People, you won't be able to share what you're struggling about and you feel lonely. But it doesn't mean we, every time we gather, say, oh, I'm so terrible, I've seen this and that and this and that. You know, we share, but we don't indulge and remain there. We are covenanted people, covenanted community. We are committed to pursuing Christ and pursuing holiness. So we live, we admit that we're sinners, but we, by faith, we want to live as saints because that's what we are called. So that's true spiritual fellowship. And within this fellowship, to bear each other's burdens is not just those who are in sin, those who are struggling. Then Paul deals with the next one, the leaders. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things to the one who teaches him. The teachers, the leaders, those that we think won't have struggles. To share all good things means to support them with money or material things. This is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. First Timothy says, he quotes from Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. What does it mean? The laborer is worthy of his wages. If he works, you should pay him, you should support him, you should let the ox eat. First Corinthians, Paul says, who at any time serves as a soldier at your own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat for the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Of course, right? You fight, you expect to be supported. You grow the vineyard, you expect to eat the fruit. And he quotes the verse just now and says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? God is not talking about oxen that oxen needs to eat. He's talking about the, the people, the human beings who are serving. Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes, for us? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the treasure ought to trash in hope of sharing the crops. If they're serving you, support them. If we, Paul is saying him, we sow spiritually, spiritual things in you, the church of Corinth. Is it too much if we reap material things for, from you? Is it too much to expect you to support us materially? Of course not. But then of course, Paul goes on to say, I do not expect it from you, right? Because I don't want to stumble you. But when we go back to Galatians, the idea here is to support those people materially. It's okay. Now how much? Well, of course, different churches, different ways of doing it. But I think when you look at the church, we always look at the medium. Right? Back then it's true, now it's true because you don't want those who are teaching the Word to, to struggle they, to, so that they can focus on doing God's work. And that's biblical. But of course, in the application, it's not just about money and material things. Our time, sharing the, the shepherding burden, or just giving a call to encourage the person. And the one who is taught to teach the Word is not just necessarily pastors, right? 
your Sunday school teachers, your DG leaders. We appreciate all our DG leaders because without you, we cannot shepherd effectively. And you think about your DG leaders, okay? You are busy, she is busy. You have your family, he has his family. You have work, they also have work. But every week, they have to plan the DG meetings, who facilitates, who open house. And so we ought to encourage and appreciate them. Sometimes I feel they are often the loneliest, lone, the most lonely one. Right? Because when you have problems, they can't visit you, right? But when they have problems, who visits them? And sometimes I hear DG leaders responding and says, you know, when I'm in trouble, those that I invested so much time with, they didn't even bother to call me. They are not expecting much, you know, just one phone call. But I explain, sometimes you are like that, you know, because, you know, I would think, well, you're my leader, right? You're the spiritual leader. I, 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 who am I to encourage you? I don't know what to say. It's awkward, so I'd rather just pretend uh, that I don't know. So there may be many reasons. But don't underestimate that, that phone call. Or even in church, when you see this person and say, how are you? I appreciate you for what you're doing to encourage each other, just like Al and uh, Ed Ro Rowan, right? Every 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest, leaning on each other, whispering encouragement, prayers, Bible verses in each other's ears. That is the Christian life. Who are you encouraging? Remember I shared this story before? When I first came back to Singapore after 10 years in the US, I was almost 40, I felt I had to hit the reset button. I come back and I don't know what I'm doing, got nothing. Everything restarts again. And I was struggling a bit. I thought for the last 10 years, you know, what have I done? Like nothing, you know. And then I read the Bible verse, right? That when the, in Leviticus, when the Israelites go into the promised land, every tribe would have land except the Levites because the Lord is their inheritance. You know, when you read this, you wow, the Lord is their inheritance, wonderful. But all I saw was the Levites has no land and land in Singapore very expensive. So I was wrestling, right? And then I didn't know how much uh, the expenses here in Singapore is because I was away for 10 years. So I tried to do a cash budget. What it means is you draw a bunch of cash, put in the wallet, put in the drawer. Every time I need, I'll go and take. The fourth week, I wanted to tithe. I went to a drawer and the amount in there was less than the amount that I had in mind to tithe. Which means I under budget or I overspent, right? Now, I could have gone to the bank to withdraw the money and top it up. But I decided, no, I will not do that. And I remember at the time, we still had offering bags. I was sitting somewhere here. Okay, I think I was going to preach. The offering bag came back, came around and I put the money in. I said, God, God, sorry, this month only so much. Oh, that was Sunday. Tuesday came around, I went to office, saw this envelope. So it was an anonymous love gift. And this doesn't, has, doesn't happen very frequently, okay? And I'm not expecting you to give me a love gift, but... When I opened it, the amount inside was exactly the same amount I put into offering bag. You know, it was such an encouragement to me because it was God reminding me, hey, look, I've taken care of you for 10 years. Why are you wrestling? I will take care of you. Now, I know I shared this story before, but my point is not about the experience, but about the giver. It was anonymous. I don't know who gave. And the person certainly sits amongst you. But do you know how God used your giving to change my entire perspective when I came back to Singapore, feeling lost. Every call you make to your leaders, you think they don't need encouragement. Every time you're willing to offer time to go visitation together, 
Every word you say of encouragement, every gift you give, God can use beyond our imagination. And so that is why Paul continues, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What are you investing in? Continue to do what is good, even though you may not see the results. Don't sow in the flesh. It may feel good, but it's not good. Sow in the Spirit. It may not feel good. You may not see the result, but you will reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if you don't grow weary. I helped my own neighbour, uncle, read his letters, hoping to share the gospel. While I share the gospel, he doesn't understand. I try to restore a relationship, call out someone in sin. I get scolded. That person avoids me every time in church. You know, I work, I try to be a good testimony, but I always get the dirty work, those work that nobody wants to do. There's no result the Bible says, don't lose heart. In due time, we will reap if we don't grow weary. And hence it ends. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are in household of faith. So how do we lead a gospel-centered life? In community. In this, community, this faith community, first, those who are in trespasses, we are to bear each other's burdens, to restore them. Then, to the leaders, to those who teach us. We have to encourage them. And then to all people, especially the household of faith, do good, trusting that whatever we do, God will use, even though we may not see the result. Robin Lee shares this, her story, when she went to a garage sale and she saw this beautiful saxophone. It was only for $20. It had a special engraving on it. So she called her husband, you know, asked, how much, can you go online to check? How much is this, is this worth? The husband checked and says, there's no one selling. She was a bit surprised, but she said, okay, so she bought it. But after buying, she was quite disturbed. It's like, what if nobody buys, you know, I waste money. And then there was an old man who approached her and asked her, can you sell me that saxophone for another $20? Whatever you pay, I'll put 20 more. And she thought, not bad, right? Come for a garage sale, I earn $20. So she sold it. She got home. She felt uneasy. She went online to check and within five minutes, she found three people selling the same thing for $500. And she let out this scream, ah, calling her husband's name. Whenever you hear that, that's not good news. The husband came over and he saw, she said, I thought you said nobody's selling. And the husband went, oh. Oh, oh, cost me $500. God wanted to bless me, but I messed it up. And for the next few days, she could not sleep. Every time she thought about the saxophone, she felt bitter. And she imagined the old man laughing at her, mocking at her. Ha, 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 I made your money, you know. Stole your blessing. Finally, she got up one night, opened the Bible to Galatians 6. Do not be wary in doing good. When we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of household of faith. Then she began to write down all her thanksgiving. Every time she thought about the saxophone, she praised God. She, she re re reiterated all the thanksgiving. And finally... She was able to let go and life became more enjoyable. More importantly, she was willing to forgive her husband and his life became more enjoyable. A few months later, she went to another garage sale and then she saw the same old man. She pretended not to see him because all the bitterness started welling up. And then he called out and said, Hey, do you remember me? Do you have any treasures to sell today? Oh, 
she just replied him curtly, no. And then he said, I want to share with you, you know, what a blessing the saxophone had been. I haven't played this instrument in decades. And ever since I've been practicing, it has brought me much joy. Not only that, I've been going to the school to volunteer and help those students from poor family learn to play the sax. And it's been such a blessing to them. Now, Robin Lee said when she heard that, God opened her eyes. She realized, you know, all this time I thought this man stole my blessing. But really, God was using me to bless him, using him to bless the students. And as a result, they became a blessing to me. Friends, do not worry to do good because in due time, we will reap a harvest of eternal life. While we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those in a household of faith. How do we lead a gospel-centered life in community? What is the crux of this life? Now we're coming really to the summary of the whole book. And Paul reiterates the point of the book. He says, see, with the large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand, right? Maybe he has Lao Hua, right? So he write very big. He says, those, Lao Hua is long-sighted, is it? Yeah. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Remember, the Jewish people came to Galatia, told the Christians, just believing in Jesus is not enough. We have to follow the law, do this, do that. Paul is saying they're doing this so that they don't have to become Christians, so that they don't have to face persecution. For those who are circumcised, do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh, so that they can boast saying, look, I'm able to influence these people. Look, I have these followers. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The theological climax of this book is in Galatians 2. Paul says, I'm now crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live not for myself, but by faith in the Son of God who gave His life for me. And here he's reiterating the same point. And he ends, <coughs> Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's not about all these external rituals, traditions, what people think. It is this internal transformation. It's not something we can manufacture. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Do we have a new creation value, new creation thinking? Because that's what truly matters. And then he ends the book. He says, Those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, be upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. They were accusing Paul, and Paul says, Okay, stop that. I prove my identity and qualification by what I suffered for the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. So we come to the end of this book. This book is known as the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. A freedom in Christ because the just shall live by faith. It was this book that captured the imaginations and the heart of Martin Luther that sparked the Reformation. And that is why today we have these Protestant Christian churches. How do we wrestle with this identity as a child of God that the just shall live by faith? It's not just our identity, it's also the Spirit that helps us, but importantly, it is the faith community. Are you committed to such a community? Are you growing in such a community? 
Do you have someone to journey with you? 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest till we meet Christ face to face. And that takes effort. You know, sometimes when I'm going through challenges, I don't feel like telling people. No point. Especially my accountability partners, right? You know, one is in some jungle. Sometimes I text him my own problem. I feel it's so trivial. It's, it's, it's important for me, right? But I was thinking he read in a jungle. Maybe he's worrying whether a poisonous centipede is going to eat his child. And here he's reading me. Oh, I'm whining over no, no aircon, you know? I don't know. So sometimes I don't feel like doing it. But I realize you want to build such a relationship. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes humility. I need to humble myself and just share. And then we can maintain this relationship. Within a community, it's not easy. That's why in the pastor's voice I shared, right? Otland said, when iron sharpens iron, it causes friction. I don't like you, you don't like me. Sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes it's because I'm easily offended. So we must discern there's a difference between hurting someone and harming someone. I may feel hurt by that comment, but was that meant for harm? Or was it meant for my good? There's a difference between uh, being loved and feeling loved. I may not feel loved, but actually I'm loved. Jesus loved everyone, but not everybody felt His love. In fact, those who didn't crucified Him. When the young man I disciple confronted me, I tell you, I didn't feel love at all. I wanted to fight back. I wanted to say something. But I know it's out of love. And so we all, we are designed to need community. In our modern culture, as Pastor Siegel Marshall says, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections and social robots may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of a friendship. Digital relationships are not real, right? We're not happy, we just turn it off, we swipe it off. But a real relationship has demands. Sometimes I'm upset, but I can't just swipe that person off. And so that is why the church community is important. Isolation dies in church families that know they need and want together. From them, for them, Sunday mornings aren't a sweet addition to a full and happy life. Sunday corporate worship, our DGs, they are not extra. They are the foundation of a full and happy life. God means for us to know Him, serve Him, enjoy Him, and become like Him as a part. To grow in Christ-likeness together as a corporate body. So once again, do you have someone to journey with you? 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest, 100 steps rest. Let us pray. You know, as the Spirit prompts us, let's take this time to respond in prayer. Maybe there are some difficult relationships or some issues or some burdens you have that you feel like you need to talk to, talk to that person. Or maybe you are hurt because you feel that you know, the people that you love uh, didn't help you in your time of need. Maybe we need to have coffee with that person, bring this up. Maybe we need to humble ourselves. Maybe we need to allow the Spirit to work and to heal in your heart. So let's take this time to respond to the Lord in prayer.